Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Much has happened with me since I last spoke with you here on the podcast. It's past time for me to send my voice to you again, and I hope that what I share with you today will speak to what has been happening in your life. As you may or may not know, I was a few months ago at age 82, quite unexpectedly diagnosed with a breast malignancy, a malignancy that was removed successfully along with a sentinel node lymph gland that proved benign, a good outcome, except for my having to deal with the aftermath of two surgeries a week apart, as well as radiation and the subsequent physical and mental discomfort and tiredness along with the effects of medications that are doing a number on me, and also as the result of having been under anesthesia five different times in the past year and a half at my age. All of that has given me a certain amount of brain fog and fatigue and disorientation. Of course, I am aware that everyone, not just me, has faced big challenges in the past months, in the past year or so, The pandemic and its effects, the extremes of weather and fires and floods, as well as political unrest and confusion. And so I thought I might share with you some of the things I've been contemplating in the hope that they will resonate with you as perhaps you too have experienced a sort of exhausted brain fog or weary uncertainty. We read in the classical text of ancient Greece about something they called the underworld, a place enshrouded by dense fog, under a pall of misty, uncertain twilight, a dark realm, dismal, cut off from the things of the upper world, a place for the shades of the lost. The underworld was, it was said, a a shadowy place where the gates were guarded by many monstrous creatures and and by a fearful many-headed dog. Here in the underworld, the, the shades of the dead are detained for all their protestations, and decisions are made as to possible future new life. The underworld. I knew as soon as I I heard the word cancer that I now faced a new, perhaps dark period where not only was physical death a possibility, but perhaps more likely the death of other things like my present agenda, my plans. This would be an interruption perhaps temporarily, perhaps permanently, of some of my abilities and activities. I felt an abrupt shift, a pull into an uncertain realm. Now, to be sure, one doesn't have to have a serious illness to feel that shift. Life has a way of taking us all, at times, on unexpected journeys of descent through loss, grief, depression, and other painful or bewildering maladies of body and spirit. In fact, that ancient description of the underworld I just read is a bit reminiscent of the atmosphere we all experienced during the pandemic with all its grief and our protestations over the appalling numbers of lost lives and opportunities as we were locked down and held back by circumstances. Indeed, how many of us right now are sure that our culture itself is not descending to a place more and more enshrouded with dark uncertainty. It seems that various 
gruesome monsters of incivility are at the doorways of our communal lives and threaten our inner psychic and spiritual stability. Many people have begun to feel their spirit slip into a descent to the underworld, if you will. On the One and All Wisdom website, incidentally, one of the video courses is called Descent to the Underworld. The course concerns the archetypal meanings of the ancient Greek mythology of Persephone, who in the myth was taken suddenly and forcefully to the underworld, to the somber kingdom of darkness. Now let me say here that as a longtime student of cross-cultural mythology, psychology, and spirituality, I do not think of such myths either as mere stories to entertain or as something to be taken literally, but rather as psychological images and lessons learned and passed down through ages about human experience. Ancient myths, stories, and parables can give us guidance because they do contain archetypal patterns of behavior, potentialities that reside in each of us just because we're human. They are full of instructions about how each of us may best be at various times, even in times of the underworld. The myth of Persephone says that she was wandering naively near a cliff, mindlessly drifting along in a field of flowers in the brightness of the upper world, when suddenly, unexpectedly, she was taken down to a place completely different, an unknown place, where her fate was uncertain. She had as yet no orientation at all. So was I. The day I got the call from the hospital advising me to come back for more testing after what I thought was a routine mammogram, I had just been to see my primary care doctor who had given me a clean bill of health and, and even congratulated me on how well I was doing. I'd driven home delighted, mine wandering into thoughts of how good I felt, how beautiful the flowers on the roadside were, how bright the blue sky and white puffy clouds were. Arriving home, I was shocked to hear the message that, oops, something was definitely seriously wrong. It would have been easy then for me to find myself like Persephone in the myth, trapped in the underworld. It would have been easy for me to be captured and completely overtaken by fears that I might soon die from this cancer. One part of me, one of the various inner characters in my psyche, was immediately ready to fill me with dread and despair. But I did fortunately have other inner resources, other psychic characters, who informed me that there were other ways to frame this. There is, for example, an even older mythology, that of the Sumerian story of Inanna, who chose to leave the shining upper world and to daringly descend into the dark underworld to retrieve something precious that was held hostage there. And I knew that the myth of Inanna, like other spiritual stories, speaks not only of descent but also of the possibility of return, of a resurrection, that brings with it the boon not only of continued life, but also the retrieval or saving or salvation of something previously lost. What would this journey be for me? What would I gain from this journey if I survived? For I knew that survival, physically at least, was not guaranteed by the myths or anything else. This descent 
of mine was not superficial, not merely an intellectual exploration, not one that could easily be satisfied with quick-fix positive clichés like always face the sunshine and you'll never see the shadows. These shadows were real, a matter of life and death. But I also knew that death was not a foregone conclusion, and I knew that there were tools for me, in addition to all the remarkable medical tools at my disposal. There were tools for me psychologically in those things I knew about that could help me keep my balance. I knew I had no choice but to accept that what was happening was real. I couldn't pretend that I didn't have to deal with this. I had to admit, however optimistic I might be of the outcome, that this was a descent of falling away from where I had been. I was changed. After my surgeries and the radiation, I became weak, shaky, sleepy. I was both mentally and physically impaired. I've slept more in the past few weeks, I think, than in the rest of my life put together. When not at doctor visits, I just wanted to lie down and be still. And I've had no choice but to do that. I have felt helplessly caught in my physical circumstances. And, like many of you, I have been caught and affected by the changing world outside with all its exhausting conflicts. The myths of Persephone and Inanna both tell us that each of them was caught for a time in the underworld. The proud and fierce Inanna, who was the daughter of the king of the upper world, and who had never been defeated by anyone or anything before, was nonetheless when she, she dared to try to barge into the underworld. She was forced, in the words of the myth, to hang on a stake in the underworld for a long time before being released. Modest Persephone, in her myth, fared better, having merely been abducted by the king of the underworld, who made her his queen. But she was not allowed to leave his dark abode, at least for a time, and there was no ability for her to connect with the upper world to the outside world. So I, knowing these myths, while I was sort of hung on a stake, so to speak, waiting through radiation and discomfort and lots of physical and psychological changes, I tried to hang on and follow the ancient mythic pattern. I, too, was caught, though, with an inability to reach out to the upper world, the outer world where all of you were, where I had before, where I had been able to act strongly for example, to record podcasts and get on with the rest of my life work and play. Now, I just could not. I had an absolute necessity to just be there. I thought about how in the midst anyone who successfully made it to the underworld and back had to pay certain dues or meet certain requirements at the gateways between the worlds. Inanna, for example, proud and fierce princess of the upper world, as I said, was told at each of a number of portals to the underworld that she had to give up one by one her accoutrements, crown, scepter, jewels, and so forth, all the symbols of who she was, her status, her power, her persona, so that when Inanna finally entered the underworld, she was stripped down just to her own self, vulnerable, no status at all, no roles, no outer acknowledgement or expectations, just her natural self. 
I would perhaps have to do the same, be stripped of my previous notions about myself, about what I could and could not do. For example, I couldn't right then, maybe never, finish the new video course I had been working on for the website. I would no longer, for a time anyway, be active or be of much use, I thought, to anyone else, much use to the needs of others. But I had to let go for a while, as I, if you will, gave at the portals of this experience the gifts of my time and my attention instead to visit doctors or to rest quietly to attend to my physical condition. I also became aware that as my physical activity diminished, my inner world really woke up. So I had to give lots of time just to pay attention to the comings and goings of my busy psyche, to my moods, with all the cast of characters demanding my attention in that twilight place in the world. It's not easy to give time to stillness, to having quiet time to listen and interact with our own inner worlds, not for any of us. Most people's lives are full already with delightful and with dutiful things. Many people who already are overworked and burnt out or stressed out fall in bed at last just to sleep, not to devote time to what I call listening silence. But life does have a way of making us pay our dues. Finding quiet time for ourselves is a necessity, and if we don't do it, life will sometimes do it for us. In my case, it was not only the fatigue and chemical changes in my body after the surgery and during the radiation that slowed me down to stillness and cut me off from the outside world of my previous activities. My phone went out and stayed out for three weeks. The dirt road into my house washed out in a storm so that cars couldn't get in or out. It was as though life was emphasizing to me, you must be still for a while. Perhaps some of you during the pandemic lockdown felt an enforced stillness and isolation as we, we all tried to reorient ourselves to the changed manner in which we might or might not be able to work. Certainly we wouldn't in the usual way. But whether one finds such stillness in meditation or in a walk in the forest or along the beach are in lingering before the view of a distant mountaintop or, or a favorite painting or, or whether the stillness comes as, as it did this time for me from being confined to bed by weakness. Such listening stillness can open the way to wisdom and healing because by incorporating the wisdom of the underworld with the wisdom of the upper world and the ordinary world, one approaches a more balanced and more desirable and fulfilling wholeness. So I succumbed to this descent, this reality of what was happening to me, remembering those guardians at the gate, how the myths say that one should, upon entering, have prepared gifts <laughs> to carry in one's hands willingly, gifts for the guardians at the underworld. One should take honey cakes to distract the many-headed dog, for example, or to deal with the monsters at the gate? How would I deal with this sometimes monstrously disturbing intrusive thoughts or those negative memories or any other unfinished business that began to rise up to challenge me in my weakened stillness? Another myth tells us 
on going towards the underworld, one should be prepared by knowing ahead of time some of the answers to whatever confusing riddles that the gruesome guardians are the imagined monsters one might meet before one could safely make passage. What answers would I know? What offerings would I be able to make? What gifts did I still have to offer, debilitating as I felt? There is another mythic story that on the way to the underworld, one meets a very old woman who bends down and, and draws in the sand half of a pattern, and then she erases it and one has to know how to recreate and complete that pattern, perhaps unique to that individual in order to pass, or one would be destroyed on the spot. Such are the myths. <laughs> so too, in a way, was the cancer I was dealing with. The radiologist was at pains to explain to me how exact the pattern of the radiation had to be, just so much, just right here and not there lest the radiation be destructive instead of healing. The same might be said of the complex inner and spiritual or psychological work we all face when we are plunged into the dim hall of the underworld of our psyches by circumstances. Was I prepared? Well, at least I had long ago spent time thinking about such things, contemplating, for example, the African Yoruba chant that was metaphorically about the preparations for a hurricane, a devastating force called Oya, an African name that stands for the actual hurricane, but also for any inner force within the psyche that can be unleashed at times with potential devastation. We're told in the chant how one must first prepare himself or herself, first by touching one's closed eyes with certain special objects to open one one's eyes wide, and then by saying the words, sight, don't go. I suppose one must know how to open one's eyes in a special way, in a sacred way, as the chant says, to be clear-seeing, to prepare for what is happening or about to happen. One must see clearly instead of ignoring or denying or repressing or immediately trying to placate or bargain successfully even to survive whatever is coming, whatever is happening. One must have one's eyes open to darkness and light, to inner and outer realities, to dangers, personal or environmental, or perhaps political, whatever. Just looking away and thinking positive and ignoring the perils won't do. Say, sight don't go. And the chant tells us one must stand ready to speak clearly, directly, and respectfully to the storm. And the very words and the manner of speech matter. Just as in the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there are formulas, words that one must know how to speak when the time comes with the right attitude, not of pride or groveling. Instead, there must be as one writer about the African Oya chant has said, there must be a familiar interchange that is an intimate one, a mutual, even gently humorous process of recognition that establishes one's human relation to divine force without presumptuously seeking to control it. To be on familiar terms with the various levels of one's psyche... <laughs> 
is a life work, establishing more and clearer consciousness of all aspects of the psyche, building toward that familiar positive interchange, if you will, between all the aspects of reality. Here's an abbreviated part of the long Oya chant, instructing a young apprentice of wisdom awaiting a hurricane, outer or inner, and I quote, Greetings, apprentice. Something is coming, and when it arrives, it will bring you good fortune if, quickly, you touch each eye with sacred objects, saying, My sight don't go. Sacrifice, in addition, snails, shea butter, palm oil, and plenty of money. Then put those eye protectors on the shrine and let the adept sing praises to Oya on your behalf. For whenever, whatever this thing is, arrives, it will bring you good fortune when atonement is completed. (laughs) The phrase, have the adept sing praises on your behalf, reminds me of part of the Inanna myth in which, before she left the upper world, however brashly to go into the underworld, she told a trusted adept that if she didn't return in a certain amount of time for him to raise a hue and cry until she be rescued. Likewise, when Persephone was unwillingly taken into the underworld, her mother Demeter raised enough of a hue and cry that the king of the upper world had to force the king of the underworld to allow Persephone's release, at least for part of the time of each year. Psychologists might say about that that we need enough of a grounding in the in the upper world or the real world, enough of a conscious ego, so to say, to raise a hue and cry so that we're not taken over by the deeps, not be blown into psychosis by the storms that can arise internally when things are dark and uncertain and threatening. But note that Persephone is allowed to return to the upper world, but just for part of the year. After a descent of such magnitude, one can't just go back to normal. One has changed forever after a deep dive into the underworld, psychologically, spiritually, and one has changed hopefully for the better. Hopefully one will now have more wholeness and balance and larger life than what one had before. A thorough reading of the myths of Persephone tell us that her reign as queen of the underworld was important. During the part of the year when she was there, she was revered and useful. She was no longer a naive princess, but a mature queen, dealing judiciously and gently and wisely with the shades of the dead, able to make decisions about their fate, to deal with darkness and all that went with it. Again, all these mythological characters, all of these mythic forces are archetypal, representing both outer and inner aspects within each of us and in the outer world. As I met the storms of this malignancy and the subsequent surgeries, treatments, after effects, and so forth, I knew that if I could listen to the voice of wisdom, I too could say, with the chant, my sight don't go, I needed clear vision and honesty in approaching this experience with the right attitude not of resistance or pride or groveling, but with the interchange that that quotation I just read said established my human relation, not only with this cancer, but with the whole of reality, without presumptuously seeking to control everything, but seeing myself as co-creator of my reality, 
a co-creator along with my doctors and other medical personnel, co-creating along with the financial benefits from Medicare, co-creating along with people's prayers, along with the daily loving care given to me by my partner, and along with the benefits of the vast spiritual reality in which I am blessedly embedded. If I can remember that, hang on to that, the myths promise, then good fortune, ongoing life, even resurrection of some lost part of my life could be, might be mine, may be mine. There's always that. Maybe. <laughs> That's the not being presumptuous part, of course. So I continue to probe and deepen my awareness into this wisdom as I am able, but it's not easy. The necessary medication I'm taking inevitably brings on depression, I'm told. That fugue state where shadowy thoughts of remorse or loss of I should have, I could have, I never did, I never will, and so forth come to the fore like those monsters at the gate. Being realistic and on doctor's orders, I'm taking an antidepressant for a while to help with this. But when these shades of the past, the memories of incidents small and large, unfinished business in my psyche, when these rise up before me in the stillness of the dark night to taunt me and haunt me, I've tried to follow the mythic instructions. I've tried to see more clearly from many points of view, leaving nothing out. I internally acknowledge these feelings or moods, whatever they may be, maybe disappointment, shame, fear, regret, grief, longing, whatever. I speak directly to these moods or images or memories, even when some of them feel monstrous. I try not to either shove them back down or to let them take me over. Instead, I try to remember to <laughs> offer gifts by saying a sincere bless you, which is directed both to the memory or the mood, and also to myself in general, as I hold on to compassion for it all. And I try to call to mind happy memories to balance the unhappy ones. The compassion and mercy and forgiveness that follow such clear-seeing honesty is the healing grace, I think. It is, as the Jungians taught me long ago, how to deal with the shadow correctly. Again, the myths speak to this, when Inanna, or one of the other ancient mythological characters, descended to the underworld, they were said to have encountered there in the underworld shades of the dead with whom they could converse, just as I converse with the shades of memory from my past. And the myths say, when Inanna was able to return to the upper world, she brought back with her countless of these shades from the underworld up into the upper realms, what had perhaps wrongfully been buried in darkness was brought back into the light. One might say that the negative memories being brought into a more clear-seeing and more balanced consciousness are healed, given a newness of life to function in better order instead of being destructive, having been blessed consciously with the most gentle and compassionate mercy and forgiveness and tenderness. I'm trying for that. And also, besides, I spend much of my time in stillness allowing the good stuff in my vastly wider consciousness to become more available to me. And it has. 
the listening stillness practice brings, if you will, pardon the inadequate language, the, the voice of God, the wisdom of that which includes the inner, the outer, and the beyond, the beyond, the mysterious. I'm continuing to explore consciously, mostly by listening and receiving and observing the spiritual dimensions where the above world and the below world of time and space, of life and death, where all of these distinctions and definitions and separations are, are irrelevant or at least secondary. That place where eternal life is the reality. Eternal life that is also called by the name of love and is, always is what is, what has been and will be and can never cease to be and which can be experienced and enjoyed and known right now, whatever the circumstances. All of that, of course, is so deep and mystic and important that I can't speak more of it right now, but it is a sacred journey for all of us. And you, my friends, are the adepts that sing praises of the eternal sacredness of things that, known by many names and in all times and places, make up the one true blessed reality in which I and you and all else reside and have our being and from which we can never be separated, living and dying. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your patience with my AWOL status these weeks away from the podcast. That's enough, perhaps more than enough for now. I'll hope to continue to report in as I may on many subjects, giving more meaning, perhaps, and connections in the days ahead. Certainly, we need meaning in the world today. Some days listening to the news, I feel as if our whole society, even our whole world, is cascading roughly down into the underworld. So I hope these few arrows pointing back to ancient wisdom finds you and aids your orientation in this time of Oya of deepening dangerous storms of various kinds. For just as the Oya chant continues in its conclusion, quote, Watch out, apprentice. You have but two alternatives. There are 2,000 enemies waiting to put you down and 2,000 charms for avoiding death. So let's all be charmingly resilient and hopeful and clear-seeing and clear-speaking, humble and busy with doing what we can do in all these present circumstances where the stakes are so high and what we do matters. In the ancient description of the underworld, it was said that there are two rivers that flow into the underworld. One gentle river leads on to bliss, and the other river, and I quote, with a mighty roar rushes fiercely on, rolling down rocks in a cascading flood, a storm of wide-mouthed chaos, so huge and wearied with its own burden that it could swallow all matter and the falling universe. End quote. Let us choose the river of gentleness and peacefulness in new life, preparing us for wholeness, even when we are surrounded by the other river of chaos, even when everything seems falling away. We have important choices to make, and we have ancient and holy guidance and support to sustain us. I am healing more and more each day. 
I hope this podcast is meaningful to you. I send it to you with so much gratitude and love. Lift up your hearts. We are still here. The day is still beautiful and life is still beloved. The future lies before us. We go forward together. This has been Glenda Taylor on the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Join me again next time and join me also on the One and All Wisdom website.